Hi, this is Steve Meyer, and I want to thank you for being a regular listener of the ID the Future podcast. We appreciate your interest in intelligent design and the work we're doing to develop the case for the theory of intelligent design. And I'd like to encourage you, if you find these broadcasts edifying, intellectually or otherwise, to become a regular financial supporter of the work of the Center for Science and Culture. You may know that we depend entirely on private donations. We don't get any federal money. We don't get government money for our scientific research program. And if you find the work that we're doing interesting, we'd be awfully grateful if you'd consider becoming a partner in that work by providing whatever you're able to ensure that that work goes forward. Today on ID the Future, we're happy to bring you another interview with Dr. Tom Woodward, host of the Universe Next Door syndicated radio broadcast. In conjunction with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, Dr. Woodward regularly interviews CSC scientists and scholars on various aspects of the debate over Darwinian evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where every week we try to tackle some side or facet or dimension of the physical universe or even the universe of thought to be dissected, discussed, analyzed, and even debated. Well, today we are thrilled to have with us one of the world's leading experts on Charles Darwin's colleague, who probably is not as famous as Charles Darwin, although he independently, working from the other side of the world, came up with his own theory of evolution by natural selection. And yet, this gentleman, his name, of course, is Alfred Russell Wallace. I'm talking about the guy from the 1800s, Bill. Not our guest. <laughs> not today. our guest today, no. <laughs> we have an expert on, uh, on Alfred Wallace today with us. But he, Alfred Wallace, became at the end of his life in uh, the early 1900s more affiliated in his thought with intelligent design. Mm. That's an amazing story. And we do welcome back to our program again, Michael Flannery. He is a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And Professor Flannery, if you would just give us your other major uh, title there, just kind of clarify what other hat you wear. Well, down. yes, it's, it's a long-winded title. I'm also Associate Director for Historical Collections here at UAB. So Yes, and if you would just mention the fascinating book that you had a a very leading hand on as the kind of writer-editor of this very important book that came out just a while back and talking about Alfred Wallace. Yeah, I, I actually have two books. I have Alfred Russell Wallace, A Rediscovered Life, which was published by our friends at the Discovery Institute. It's a brief and I think highly accessible biography of Alfred Russell Wallace. It's only Oh, about 160-some-odd pages. And then I also have an earlier book, which I have revised. There's a new revised edition out called Alfred Russell Wallace's Theory of Intelligent Evolution, How Wallace's World of Life Challenged Darwinism. Hmm. And that carries a foreword by uh, William a. Dembski, which I'm sure you certainly know and has probably been on your program. Yes, he has a number of times. William Dembski, of course, 
has contributed in a massive way. He really, in a way, has been described, and properly so, as the Einstein, the kind of the intellectual powerhouse on the mathematical, logical side of how you detect design in any physical system, any phenomenon. And of course, William Dembski doing the foreword to any book is a very significant achievement. So my congratulations go to you for both of those books. But you've been doing work on Alfred Wallace, and it's kind of fun for me to think that Darwinism almost was Wallaceism because of the story of how they kind of ran to the finish line and and the, it was a nose. It was uh, Darwin by a nose, at least in terms of the <laughs> historical perspective. But tell us the story of Alfred Wallace's discovery independently and how that was revealed to Darwin. If you just recap the story sure, as a background. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Well, Alfred Russell Wallace was born in a very uh, obscure little village called Usk, U-S-K, which is on the English-Welsh border, and he was born on uh, January 8th, 1823, to struggling parents. He, he was not born into poverty, but you might say his family was of declining wealth. And so Wallace didn't have any, what you might say, formal education. Most of his education was self-taught, and he became fascinated with nature very early on. He leaves in early April of 1848 and spends four years in the Amazon River Basin collecting insects, birds, monkeys, all kinds of animals. He heads back to England in October of 1852 only to have his ship destroyed by fire and along with it all of his mass of specimens that he was bringing back. So while it was a tremendous experience, he regarded it as actually something of a terrific loss and a, mm -hmm. in some senses a failure. So in 1854, he heads out in the spring of 1854 to the Malay Archipelago, the big island chain out in the Southeast Pacific, and spends eight years there and does not come back to England until 1862. The long and short of it is he winds up collecting over 125,000 specimens wow. while he's in the Malay Archipelago. He was an active collector. He would take these specimens, send them off to his agent in England. His agent in England would then sell them to collectors, and that's literally how he made his living. So, so if I could just recap, again, today with us today uh, on the program, Michael Flannery. He is an expert on the life and writings and the scientific thought of Alfred Wallace, co-discoverer of the principle of natural selection simultaneously with Charles Darwin. Just recapping this amazing story that, in my mind, comparing his lack of wealth and formal education with Charles Darwin's being born into a family with a silver spoon in his mouth, his father being a physician and being privileged to go to Cambridge University. Did the two of them meet face-to-face -face before the two of them began corresponding? They knew one another. They had a sort of passing acquaintance with one another. I don't think made much of an impression on Darwin, mm -hmm. but where their paths really cross is when 
Wallace, who, again, as I said, had a passing acquaintance with Darwin, knew of, of Darwin's work as a naturalist, and decides to send off to Darwin in the spring of 1858, probably posted it in early March, a letter. And this letter was called on the tendency of varieties to depart from their original type. Well, that's not exactly a very catchy title, but it wasn't actually designed to be catchy. It was designed to be a letter broaching to Darwin a theory of how species may have developed over time. So this was something of a shock for Darwin. It was absolutely flabbergasting to Darwin. When he gets this, he gets this in his home. And he is utterly shocked, and he says to his friend Joseph Hooker, if I had written out myself an abstract of my own theory, I couldn't have done a better job. Mm. So this really was the theory of natural selection, and it prompts Darwin from that point on to really rush his theory to press, because what happens is, is he goes to Joseph Hooker, gets with his close confidants, and they decide the best thing to do is to really announce this at the next meeting of the Linnaean Society. And so the theory is unveiled. It's be really unveiled by Joseph Hooker and Charles Lyell two of Darwin's closest friends, at the meeting on July 1st, 1858. And that is really the unveiling of the theory of evolution by means of natural selection. However, from that point on, Darwin knows that he doesn't have unlimited time to really get his entire theory together and published. And so he rushes his notes together, and in November of 1859, The Origin of Species is, is published in its first edition. Right. And of course, that, according to your analysis today with us on the phone, Michael Flannery, expert on this topic. Michael, you, you're saying that at that point, Darwin had successfully, by publishing his full book-length treatment of natural selection, he avoided being scooped or co-opted, let's say. By, right. By Wallace. Um, that's the long and short of it. And so, in many ways, Wallace was the catalyst that prompted Darwin to, to finally, after many years, release his particular theory of evolution. Wow. Today, again, we're diving into the very important and historically significant confluence of both Darwin's thought and that of Alfred Wallace, who had thought up and or at least developed to some extent the same kind of theory on the other side of the, of the world there in the Malay Peninsula. Uh, we're going to be going back into the rest of the story, which, uh, to use the old phrase, the plot begins to thicken extensively here. And so we're going to be talking about the whole unfolding of the relationship, but also the evolving, if I can use that word, the evolving thought of Alfred Wallace in the decades that follow. Today, we are uh, excited to also remind you, if you are living anywhere in the Central Florida area, that we have a special presentation of Is God a Delusion? 
What does the scientific evidence say? And that's going to be at Pasco Hernando State College the evening of November 17th. I'll be making the presentation. We'll have some responses there from distinguished panelists. And so we're pretty excited to give you all the information at our website, apologetics.org. And if you can't make it in for the event, please lift it up in prayer as we expect a huge crowd. We'll be right back on The Universe Next Door with more on Alfred Wallace from our expert, Michael Flannery. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Universe Next Door. Today we have with us Michael Flannery. He is a professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's also involved in historical collections, especially working in the area of the history of medicine. Do I have that right, Michael? That's right. Yeah. History of medicine and science. Very good. And, of course, teaches on that campus in the area of the history of medicine. And I am really excited about the fact that you were able to do research, uh, some more research on this topic of Alfred Russell Wallace, the one that was challenging or at least uh, racing to the deadline of uh, coming up with a theory of natural selection leading to macroevolution, that you did research on this topic at a conference. And I don't know if I'm, as I'm reading this note, is it Kuching, Malaysia? Kuching. It used to be called Sarawak, Sarawak. In, uh, okay. in Wallace's day. Gotcha. It's on the island of Borneo. Okay. And uh, about a year ago, actually on November the 7th of last year, at a conference commemorating the centennial of uh, Wallace's death. He died on November 7th, 1913. They convened an international um, conference, and I was uh, uh, fortunate enough to uh, present a paper there mm. last year called Alfred Russell Wallace, Nature's Prophet from Natural Selection to Natural Theology. Mm. And uh, it went rather well. And then since then, in fact, this past summer, I spent several weeks at the University of Edinburgh going through Wallace's personal library wow. of 470 volumes. I got to look at each and every one, and the great thing about Wallace's personal library is he wrote in them. Usually you don't like to think about writing in books, but when you've got a noteworthy historical figure like Wallace, and, and he makes lots of marginalia and lots of uh, comments uh, in the volumes, it gives uh, an interesting window into his thought process. I can imagine. Some exciting scribbles, huh? Yes, very interesting. In fact, I've got over 70 pages of notes. Wow. Still sorting through them uh, right now. So it was very, very, very exciting summer for me. I, I feel another book or at least another series of articles coming on. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what this is going to do turn into, at least my excursion uh, into Edinburgh is at least a chapter in a, probably a forthcoming book. So. Mm. Well, as we set the stage for what you have discovered and what you presented, for example, in that amazing, fascinating title from natural selection to natural theology, like yeah. na nature can speak about a higher mind. I mean, who would, who would have thought that the gentleman whom Darwin respected greatly as the kind of co-discoverer of this principle of natural selection would wind up on the other side of the equation or the other end of the debate, at least to some extent, in concluding that there was a higher mind. Tell us about how the story, how, goes, that how it happens step yes, by step. absolutely. Well, um, I told briefly the story of how he came up with the theory of natural selection. Mm -hmm. However, after he returns back to England, 
And in fact, in the quarterly review, the April issue of 1869, in a review of a work on geology by Charles Lyell, he ends the review by making a comment to the effect that we know that the special attributes of mankind, of humans, are unique and that the only way to account for those unique human abilities, and by unique he meant our ability to think abstractly, our love of music, our humor, our wit, all those unique attributes that make humans humans. Even something as simple as is simple to us, but actually quite complex, our ability to converse and communicate in language. He said all of those attributes have to be ascribed to what he called an overruling intelligence. That's what he calls it in 1869. That's incredible. And he continues to develop that idea This was a long time coming, I believe. This didn't just pop up suddenly out of nowhere. He had been thinking along these lines, actually, for a fairly long period of time. And in fact, when we look at some of Wallace's work in particular, the years after he returns to England in 1862, up to 1869, we can see him headed in that trajectory. Mm. Just to give you a quick example, one of the clearest statements he makes prior to his break with Darwin in 1869 is at an address before the Anthropological Society of London, in which he addresses them on March 1st, 1864, and he says, here then we see the true grandeur and dignity of man. He's talking about anthropological man, looking at man through deep history. And he says, on this view of his special attributes, we admit that even those who claim for him a position as an order, a class, or a sub-kingdom by himself have some reason on their side. He is indeed a being apart. Wow. Now, when you understand that against the context of what Darwin believed, that man was different from animal by degree but not kind, then you begin to see the extent of their difference. Michael, I really am amazed that this uh, insight of Wallace came that early, literally just five years after the publication of Origin of Species. So was Darwin knowledgeable of this? I assume he was. And if so, was he reacting to this? Was yeah, he, was he, he grown- certainly did react to it. Okay. He, um, he didn't care for it at all. Mm-hmm. He, um, in fact, in a private letter, to Wallace says, you know, I I can't believe that this is coming from you, the author of one of the greatest papers in the Anthropological Review. He's talking about an article that was written seven years before, and he finally ends the letter by saying, E-U, 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 your (laughs) miserable friend Darwin. (laughs) What does that mean? Give me an interpretation. Well, my interpretation is that he was holding his nose over over (laughs) Wallace's invocation of a higher intelligence to call upon the attributes of man. And it was something that that Darwin wanted no part of. What do you think of that, Bill Carl? I think 
it's evident that they were intimate friends by that point. You have to sit in a room with somebody for at least seven years. That's right, to be able to for say you that. and I look at each other and go, you, really? Yeah. Okay. That's very true. Very yeah, good. They okay. knew one another pretty well by then. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, again, today we're tackling the story of Alfred Wallace. Professor Flannery, if I can use your technical term here, this is such a great, great, incredibly important story that you're revealing. If you could go ahead and just take your time as we walk through this part of the timeline, and would you be willing to be with us next week on the program? That'd be great. So bring us, we have about two and a half minutes here in this segment. Tell us a little bit more about the plot thickening here in the 1800s. Well, let me just say this, that both men actually remain rather cordial with one another. And in fact, Darwin winds up petitioning the British government for a pension for Alfred Russell Wallace. Really? Yeah, so they had a a respect for one another, although they had very differing views about the nature of nature, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, This culminates for Wallace in what I consider to be his grand synthesis of evolutionary thought, and it's a book that comes out in 1910. And I think the title and subtitle really says it all. It's called The World of Life, A Manifestation of Power, Directive Mind, and Ultimate Purpose. Mm. And that book there in, oh, about 400 pages really lays out for what Wallace came to view as a nature absolutely imbued throughout with to use a fancy word, teleology, but the more common word would simply be purpose. Okay, let's just stop there for a second, because teleology is a a word that I'm teaching my philosophy class here at Trinity College of Florida campus in Newport Ritchie. And as I explained teleology, one of the students, when I introduced Aristotle's uh, four causes, he compared it to building a Subway sandwich. He works at a local Subway store, and he says, well, the material cause is the lettuce and the bread and the meat. The efficient cause is is I with my hands. And then you have the... uh, the formal cause, the kind of the blueprint of what the sandwich looks like, and then ultimately the teleological or purpose clause mm-hmm. to provide lunch for the person who's going to buy the Subway sandwich. Right. And so, you know, let's call it Subway teleology. <laughs> so, but anyway, what you're saying is a very significant point was reached in the very incredible true story of Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace, the co-discoverer of DNA. So what we will do is we'll follow up the rest of the story in next week's program with Michael Flannery. Thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door today. And after the program, you can always uh, visit us uh, online at the apologetics.org website. That's apologetics.org. See you back here next week. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2014. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.